Let's pray, and then we'll open up God's Word. This has been just a sweet time this morning, Lord. Thank you for worship. Thank you for testimonies of how we see you working in our lives. And Lord, I pray now that you'd continue your good work by your grace in our hearts through your word. This book of Isaiah is amazing. I've got some sadness thinking of coming towards the end of it. It has been such a powerful time for me. And you've worked in my heart. And I I sense you've been working in us as a church through this book. And I pray that you would do it again this morning, Lord. Through what you had Isaiah write in chapter 65. Come and change our hearts. Encourage and strengthen our hearts. Guide and direct our paths, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, when, when you're born again, that's the phrase you know that Jesus used to describe conversion. When, when you're born again through faith in Jesus alone, just like Marcia said, okay, all kinds of things change. And, and one of the most powerful changes is that you love Jesus Christ. Knowing him, beholding him, worshiping him, fellowshipping with him, walking with him, having a heart connection to him, is what your life becomes all about. You love Jesus Christ. And, and because you love Jesus, you hate sin, which obstructs your relationship with Jesus. Right? Isn't that what sin does? Sin, like cloud, puts a cloud between you and Jesus. Sin brings a wedge between you and Jesus. It, 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 it sullies your heart so that you really aren't as, as, as able to connect with Jesus. And so because you love Jesus, you hate sin. And so if you're born again, you love Jesus, you hate sin, you want to fight against sin. You fight against sin as a born again person. But here's the question. How do you fight against sin? What do you do to fight against sin. Well, William Gurnall was a pastor in the 1600s in England, and he wrote this amazing book called The Christian in Complete Armor. I think it's like 1,500 pages, all on the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6. 1,600 pages, still being printed today, still the test of time. Here's a quote from that book. He says, It is impossible to sin with lively thoughts and hopes of the glory of heaven. It's when the thoughts of heaven are long out of the Christian's sight that he begins to set up some idol. But let heaven come in sight and the Christian's heart will be well warmed with thoughts of it. It is easier to persuade a king to throw his crown into a gutter than to persuade a heaven-focused saint to sin. Wow! Don't you love that? Now here's why I mention that. It's because in today's passage, in Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah gives us a description of heaven, which, as Gurnall said, will help us to have lively thoughts and hopes of the glory of heaven. So let's dig in. Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to be able to dig in with the Bible we're going to let you use this morning. So raise your hand so we can pass the Bible out to you. Everybody turn to Isaiah 65. And the Bibles we're passing out. Isaiah 65 is on page 623. 
Now here's what's going on in these last chapters of Isaiah. We've spent a couple weeks in Isaiah 62, 63, and 64. In those three chapters, Isaiah prays for Israel. And here's why. Israel has just been devastated. Israel was wayward, rebelling against God. God warned her repeatedly, sent prophets, warned her, turned back. Israel refused to turn back. And so God allowed Babylon to come and invade Israel. Babylon leveled Jerusalem, burned down the temple, slaughtered thousands of Israelites, and the survivors were taken as in chains as slaves back to Babylon. And so Isaiah is, is praying for that circumstance, Oh God, would you work in your people? Oh God, would you restore your people? Oh God, look at what's happened. Don't be silent. Come, work, help us. So Isaiah is just crying. We, we, we read his lament last week in Isaiah 64. He's pleading with God to help, to work, to deliver Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 65, God answers. And he starts by explaining why he allowed Israel to be conquered by Babylon. Why did he let Israel be destroyed? Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. God is speaking. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. So the problem wasn't God, it's that Israel wasn't asking or seeking. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that acted as if it was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. So as God stands towards Israel, all, he's, he's, got his, he's there spreading out his hands, I'm ready, ask me. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. So why had God let Israel be destroyed? It's because Israel had been a rebellious people. For the most part, Israel had been wayward. She's acting like a nation that wasn't even called by his name. She was rebellious. And then in verses 3 through 5, God explains how Israel had rebelled against him. God wants to make sure Isaiah gets this, and that the people get this when they read Isaiah. Verse 3, Israel has been a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. This is a description of profane, dark idol worship. Who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. More descriptions of this dark, occult, awful idol worship who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Remember in the Old Testament, God called Israel to distinguish herself from other nations by adopting unique cultural practices. They didn't eat pork, for example. Just how God wanted them to live in the Old Testament time period. But they went ahead and ate pork. They were breaking all of God's God's commandments. Verse 5, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me. I'm too holy for you. So the weird thing is at the same time they've got this strange self-righteous thing going on. Okay? We're so holy. Stay away from me. You're not as holy as me. God says, these are smoke in my nostrils. 
That's not a, hap- not a pleasant experience. Okay, anybody been in a campfire and the wind's blowing towards you? Okay, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. So here God's answering the question, why, has, why have I allowed Israel to be conquered by Babylon? It's because she's rebelled against him. Clearly, constantly, plainly rebelled. And then in verses 6 and 7, God says that because she's continuing in sin, God's going to bring even more punishment upon her. Verses 6 and 7, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will repay I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they, including your fathers, made offerings on the mountains, this is idol worship, and insulted me on the hills, bowing down to these idols, profaned God's name. So they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. So God says, I'm going to continue punishing Israel because of how rebellious she's been. Now, does this mean then that Israel is going to be completely destroyed? Is it like over for Israel? Because there have been all these promises to the Old Testament of what God's going to do through the people of Israel. There will always be someone on the line of David, right? Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It hasn't happened yet. All these questions will get kicked in. God's going to destroy people of Israel Does this mean that the people of Israel will be completely destroyed? And the answer is no. Look at what God says in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. Let me just pause at that moment. I'm not sure what that means. Okay, And and nobody really does. The Hebrew is a little bit... bit, uh, you know, unusual, some of the words are hard to figure out, and commentators that spin off all kinds of interesting theories, but, but we know what the, what the point is, because the moral of the story is in the next line. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. So that's what he's saying here. There's this whole grape analogy, therefore, I'm not going to destroy them all, okay? So that's the bottom line. See, here's what's going on. There were some in Israel, there was a remnant in Israel, there always been a remnant. Men and women, young people, who owned up to their sinfulness. Who, like Abraham, trusted God and were reckoned as completely, perfectly righteous because of God's mercy. So Old Testament saints trusted God, were completely forgiven, and counted perfectly righteous, just like Abraham. Now, they didn't know how God could do that. How can God be just and declare us perfectly righteous and completely forgiven, even though we're sinners. How can God do that? They didn't know how. They didn't know God did. They didn't know how. We now know how. How? Jesus. Okay, you guys are a little bit weak this morning, okay? (laughs) How? The cross, Jesus. So the Messiah who would come 700 years later would pay for the sins of Old Testament saints who trusted God and New Testament saints who trust God. Jesus. And so by God's grace, there was a remnant. God had worked in their hearts. Isaiah's heart, Abraham's heart, okay, Esther's heart, Daniel's heart. God had worked in their hearts so that they turned, they put their trust in God's mercy and were completely forgiven and counted perfectly righteous. And those who trusted God, those who sought God, would not be destroyed. Well, what happened to them? Verses 9 and 10. He says, 
God says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. And from Judah, I will bring forth possessors of my mountains. My chosen people shall possess it. He's speaking of the the promised land here. And my servants shall dwell there. Sharon, which is towards the west, shall become a pasture for flocks. And the valley of Achor, which is to the east, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. So those who sought God would be brought back into the promised land, a place of blessing. Their, their, their sheep are, are feeding, okay, milk and honey. They're going to be brought back. So that's what God promises to do for those who sought God. So God's people would not be completely destroyed. There'd be a remnant who sought God, be brought back. Now, what about those who did not seek God? What about those who continued to forsake God? Verses 11 through 15. God elaborates on the punishment he describes in verses 6 and 7. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Now here's what's going on here. There's, there were two gods in Babylon. One was called Fortune. And it was called destiny. And, and people would set a table for fortune and lay out food. Like, like this God was going to come and sit there and was going to, to eat. And they would do that in order to get good fortune. And there was a God called destiny. And they would offer mixed wine, a glass of mixed wine before this God destiny. So that the God destiny would give them a good destiny. <laughs> but see, do, do you feel the, the horror of this? Because, because here's God who has created everything. Right? Who's in sovereign control of everything. Who has lavished his goodness upon Israel, freeing them from the nation of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing them with manna and meat and water, bringing them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Good destiny, good fortune, good destiny, good fortune. God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy. I'm going to bow down and give this little fortune God something, maybe get something good from him, or this little destiny God something good from him, ignoring the God of the universe. So God says, you who forsake the Lord and worship fortune and destiny, verse 12, I will destine you to the sword. Powerful, ironic play on words. Same Hebrew word destiny as in I will destine you. You worship destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down, not to fortune, but to slaughter. Because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. See, nobody can plead ignorance. God has spoken. He's spoken through creation. He's spoken through Jesus Christ. When I called, you did not answer, though. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servants, that's the remnant, those who seek God, shall eat, but you who forsake the Lord shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, 
my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. See this theme? God's servants, blessed. Those who forsake God, cursed. Verse 14, Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you who continue to forsake the Lord shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen people for a curse. Here's what that probably means. The people who forsake God are going to be so terribly punished that if you wanted to curse someone, not that you would, but if you wanted to, you'd say, may God make you like the people who forsook God with all the punishment that they experience. And then second half of verse 15, and the Lord God will put you to death but his servants he will call by another name. That's what will happen to those who continue to forsake the Lord. I, mean, I just have to say here, uh, in a group this size, are you in this group? As you look at your heart, are you bending the knee in faith before Jesus Christ, relying on him Trusting him as your savior, as your Lord, as your heart satisfying treasure? Or are you forsaking God and bowing down to other idols? Trusting, you know, all the different things people trust besides Jesus Christ. So, are you in this group? Now, now, here's why God has you here this morning to hear about this group of people. It's because right now, as he says in verse 12, he's calling upon you right now. He's speaking to you right now. The question is, will you answer? Will you listen or not? He can completely forgive you for all the forsaking of him that you've done so that you will be completely forgiven for all of it through what Jesus Christ has done. If if you'll bend the knee in trust before Jesus Christ. But this is what Isaiah, what God says to Isaiah will happen to those who continue to forsake the Lord. They're going to face the sword. They're going to face hunger and thirst. Be put to shame. Pain of heart and and wailing for their broken spirits. And then God's going to put them to death. And what the New Testament makes even more clear is that they're going to be punished forever. This is where it's all going. He'd been calling. He'd been seeking them. They had just put the shine on him and just said, forget it. So that's what's going to happen to those who continue to forsake the Lord. But now, where we're really going here in this passage, what will happen to those who seek the Lord? What's going to take place with them? That's covered in verses 15 through 25. And when you read these verses, what you see is that he's describing heaven. Okay? Heaven is described here in verses 15 through 25. So these verses are describing not just the remnant, the believers from Old Testament Israel who trusted God's mercy. These verses are also describing the destiny of New Testament believers who are trusting Jesus Christ. So both Old Testament people who trusted God's mercy and New Testament people who are trusting Jesus Christ, this is for us. So verses 15 through 25 of chapter 65, this is your destiny as you're trusting Jesus Christ this morning. This is your future. As surely as you're sitting in that chair, in this room right now, you will be there. 
you will experience this. This is your reality. This is eternity for you. Your life here on earth is just a little smidgen, right? And this is where it's all headed. This is your destiny. So let's take a look at what will happen to them, those who seek God, and to us who are trusting Jesus Christ. First of all, God will completely free us from sin. That's the end of verse 15, where he says, but his servants he will call by another name. Now, in the Old Testament, the word name isn't just refers to like, you know, what your like, name is, like what's on your driver's license. It refers to your character, your nature, who you are. It's, it's the essence of who you are. And so God is saying he's going to change your nature. He's going to change your character. And I believe that that's a reference to being completely freed from sin. Now, we're already freed from the guilt of all of our sin, right? Through Jesus Christ, trusting him. But we're not yet freed from actual sin. That's what's being described here. And look at how he elaborates in verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. So as you want to seek blessing, you're going to seek your blessing in God. Okay, perfect, pure worship freed from sin. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. So all that they do is be centered on God, whether they take an oath or whatever they do, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now, imagine what it would be like to be freed, completely freed from, uh, from pride, say. We all struggle with pride. I, I do. You do. Imagine what it would be like to be completely freed from bitterness or from envy or from lust. Imagine being completely freed from all those things that cloud or bring a shadow between you and the living Jesus so that there was just, it was, they were gone. All those things that hinder your free flowing fellowship and connection with the living Jesus. All those things are gone and out of the picture and you stand completely morally good, not just clothed with Jesus, but then you are also yourself at that moment transformed into perfect moral perfection, freed from those things. That is your destiny as you're trusting Jesus Christ. Second thing he says, God will create new heavens and a new earth. It's verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. When you think of eternity, um, what, what pictures do you have in your mind? We've all got some kind of a picture, okay? Kind of ethereal, kind of like, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost. It's not really very clear, you know? You've got to understand, eternity, there's new heavens, yes, and a new earth, our eternity will take place on the new earth. Your eternity will be on the new earth, which is more real, not less real than this earth. It's more beautiful, not less beautiful than this earth. It's more spectacular, not less spectacular than this earth. So yes, there will be new heavens, but as you're trusting Jesus Christ, your destiny is the new heavens and the new earth. 
And so God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That's your destiny. Third, we will know complete and ever-increasing joy and gladness. Verses 18 and 19 just blew me away. Notice how often in these verses are repeated the words glad and rejoice, or they're, 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 they're uh, I mean, same word, different forms. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, new heavens and new earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem, part of the new earth, to be a joy, and I create her people to be a gladness. Here's all the redeemed. I, God is speaking, will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So we're glad, God's glad, we rejoice, God rejoices, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Think about it like this. Can you think back on a time in your life when you were absolutely filled with joy and gladness? I mean, just pure joy and gladness, just full of joy and gladness. Can you think of a time like that? Okay. Can you think of one? All right, now, what God is saying here is that the new heavens and earth is going to be a realm of full and ever-increasing joy and gladness. What you've had, just a little taste of, I mean, whatever you experienced when you were just full of joy, that's just like a little appetizer, a little little taste of the full and ever-increasing joy that's going to be yours in the new heavens and the new earth. You will never again, that last line, have weeping or distress. So just think, that's in your future. And it will never end. That is in your future. And it will never end. Do you see that? I mean, as you look ahead to your future, you think about, you got work tomorrow, and you do, and you've got, you know, this difficulty coming up with your family on Thursday, and, and maybe you do. And, but, so those are all there, but do you see beyond that, right? Perfect and ever-increasing joy and gladness in knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's your destiny. Okay, fourth. This one's a little harder for me to understand. Uh, Everything that could cause weeping and distress will be removed. He's elaborating on the very end of verse 19 in verses 20 through 23. But it's a little hard to figure out. Here's why. We've just read about the new heavens and the new earth, which we know refers to heaven and eternity. And we know that in eternity, is anybody going to die in eternity? No, right? We know that, okay? But here in verse 20, Isaiah talks about people they live a long time, but it sounds like they end up dying. It's a little puzzling. <clears throat> Start with verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Okay, that, that's good news. So every, every infant will, will, will not die in infancy. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. Okay. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. What he means there is, is that if somebody dies at 100, they'll be considered like they were a young man because life will be so long then. But are people going to die in the heavens and the new earth? And the sinner, 100 years old, shall be accursed. That is, he'll be counted like he's accursed because he died so, so young. Uh, that's a little puzzling. Are you puzzled? Did it, did it work? Okay, good. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. They shall not build in another inhabit. 
They shall not plant and another eat. So no one's going to take your house or take your, your vineyards. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Okay, what's going on here? Two different ways you can understand this. And I'm not sure which one I go with, so just to let you know. But here's two different ways. Some people see this, these verses as describing what's called the millennium. Okay, just a, just a brief lesson. So you got life right now here on planet Earth. This is how people who take this as the millennium understand the future. Life right now. Then Jesus comes back. And what starts is a thousand-year millennium period, which is not full-blown new heavens and new earth yet. It's better than what we've got now, but there will be people dying, and there will be, you'll be having children, and I don't really get it all, but anyway, so I haven't figured it out, all, all, out yet, but that's the millennium, and then at the end of that time comes the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe that's what's going on here. Okay? Other people say, well, I'm not so sure about that, it, it, because of some other passages, But what these verses are doing here is Isaiah is describing eternity from the Old Testament perspective. You know, the Old Testament is 100% true, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's inerrant. We also know that the Old Testament is not as clear on eternity as the New Testament is, right? I mean, Paul says that in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Eternity... Life and immortality were brought to light through the gospel of Jesus. Old Testament has like glimpses of eternity and some little, you know, uh, just kind of glimpses really what is of eternity, but the full-blown resurrection from the dead, believers in heaven, unbelievers in hell, that's not as clear in the Old Testament. And so some people take verses 20 through 23 as as the Old Testament way of describing eternity from, from kind of the the less clear Old Testament viewpoint. And the main point is that nothing that causes heartbreak or distress in this world will be there. Okay? No one's going to die too soon. No child born is going to be, you're going to die in infancy. No one's going to take your crops. No one's going to take your house. So it's just ways of describing that there will be no weeping or distress there. Like I said, I'm not sure which of those I go with. But the point is clear. And that is, as you look ahead to the future, when Jesus Christ comes back, Everything, anything that could cause you weeping or distress will be gone. Nothing will cause you weeping or distress. Rather, you're going to know complete and ever-increasing joy and gladness. Does that make any sense at all, or are you all hopelessly confused at this point? So the rest of the time you're going to be thinking, or can we move on? Any questions? I want to make sure I'm clear, because I don't want this to be, because we're going somewhere here. God has something he wants us to walk away with this passage with. But any, any questions to clarify? Okay? All right, so for now. Okay, fifth, we'll have unhindered access to God. That's verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Doesn't get any more unhindered than that, does it? That is awesome. Unhindered access to God. Now just imagine what this is going to mean. Paul talks about here we see through a mirror dimly, there we're going to see face to face. So just imagine what it will be like to see your creator, God, face to face. The one who has always been. 
the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who has all power and authority, the one who came to the earth, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, and was willing to be punished for your sin, to take your punishment upon himself, and you're going to be there in heaven, no more through a mirror dimly, but face to face. You will have immediate and unhindered relationship, connection, access to the living God, right there, face to face. You won't need to take a number or, uh, or wait in line. You, because God's infinite, and every other believer will have immediate face-to-face access with God. Now, here's a question. Does that scare you? It, it shouldn't scare you. It shouldn't scare you. Why not? I know my life. I'd have lots of reasons to be scared if it was about how God's going to look at just me. But, but I'm in Christ, right? I'm in Jesus Christ by faith. And so I'm clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. I'm forgiven for all my sins. And so when God sees me, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servants, right? Well, enter to the joy of the Lord. He's running towards me like the, the father in the, in the prodigal son passage, right? So you don't have any reason to be afraid of seeing God. Listen, if you're afraid of seeing God, you're not getting the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. Okay? If you're afraid, talk to your home group leader about this. Talk to the person sitting next to you. No one here should, should tremble at the thought of being face to face. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which you can say, whoa, that I'm going to be face to face with God. But you shouldn't be fearful about it, right? Okay. Unhindered access to God. And then finally, last one, every aspect of the curse will be gone. That's the point of verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. That's different, right? Wolves, let's go get some grass, sheep, okay? Let's go hang out. Let's go out to dinner in the pasture together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. That's a reference to Satan. Just the promise of back in Genesis, the early chapters, and we know now from the New Testament he's going to be cast into hell. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. So the new heavens and the new earth will be a completely different world. But the point here is that every aspect of the curse that was brought into the world because of our sin will be eradicated. Every remnant of the curse will be gone. It'll, the, the new heavens and new earth will be full of God's blessing, God's favor. That's the point here. Okay, now what does this mean for us? I think God wants to use this passage in our lives in one very specific, particular way. And and like I said at the beginning, you've been born again through trusting Jesus. You love fellowship with Jesus Christ. He is your joy. He is your portion. He is your heart satisfaction. And so you hate the things that that cloud that relationship. You hate how pride clouds that lust Ob, you know, makes him not as you, just, you don't sense his nearness as well you, you hate sin and so you fight sin and so you, you've all got areas of sin you're fighting I'm assuming right? if you're born again you, you think yeah I'm dealing with this one and I, you know, so you're, you're fighting sin okay? and one of the most powerful ways to gain victory over sin is through what William Gurnall said that quote I read at the very beginning let's read it again one of the most powerful ways to to gain victory over sin is by nurturing in your heart a powerful and lively sense of the glories of heaven. Here's what he said. 
it is impossible to sin with lively thoughts and hopes of the glory of heaven. You believe that? It's absolutely true. It's psychologically impossible for you to sin when you're seeing heaven as it is. Seeing God in Christ shining in heaven as he is. It's impossible. It's when the thoughts of heaven are long out of the Christian's sight that he begins to set up some idol. Isn't that true? It's when I've forgotten about heaven that idols can start to rise up in importance to me. But let heaven come in sight and the Christian's heart will be well warmed with thoughts of it. It's easier to persuade a king to throw his crown into a gutter than to persuade a heaven-focused saint to sin. Here's what I want to call you to do this week. I want you to take some time in these next, like today, Monday, Tuesday, before your home group meeting, take some time and pray over verses 15 through 25 of Isaiah chapter 65. And, And open up the Bible and pray and say, Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, Would you enlighten the eyes of my heart now? Would you come and and reveal the wonder of heaven to me? So that, like Grinnell said, so that I have lively thoughts and hopes about heaven. Because you, you know information about heaven, but you can have information and not have lively and lively thoughts and hopes of the of heaven, right? You can know and not feel. We need to feel it's lively thoughts and hopes. So open up your Bible, Isaiah 65, today, Monday, Tuesday, and pray over this passage until you feel the Holy Spirit changing your heart so you love the thought of heaven. You're tasting a little bit, oh, to see God face to face, to be in the new heavens and the new earth where there's ever-increasing joy and gladness. I love that. And so pray and ask God to do that for you and then watch to see what happens with that area of sin that you're trying to battle. And then come to home group and share. Here's what Jesus did in my heart this week. Here's how he gave me lively thoughts of heaven. And here's what happened to that area of sin I was battling. I, I guarantee you. In fact, there's a verse in First Peter, uh, First John 3. Uh, he who has this hope of eternity in him purifies himself. As he is pure. First John says the exact same thing that, that William Gurnall says here. So as you stir up the hope of heaven, you will be increasingly purified from sin's power. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Let's ask God to work. So today, Monday, Tuesday, Isaiah 65, 15 through 25, pray over it, meditate upon it, Ponder it. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and change your heart so you feel these truths. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would do a powerful work. Lord, we, we hate sin. We hate the clouds that can come between us and you, the, the shadow that can come between us and you when, when we're proud or covetousness, especially at this season, or bitter We hate those things. And Lord, we long to be freed. And so I pray, we pray together, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Today, Monday, Tuesday, as we pray over these verses, would you make them alive? That we would have revelation of what 
you say here, Father. That we would feel the wonder, the glory, the hope of heaven. And, as that happens, that you would put to death the various areas of sin that we're dealing with. I pray that you would do that, Lord. In me and in each of us, for the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.